0: Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be reading the first nine verses. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and it is the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let us pray and ask the Lord to illuminate his word. Heavenly Father, we bless your holy name. We know that your word is a rich mind for us. It shows us wisdom for life. It teaches us how to speak, how to think, how to live. But most importantly, your word shows us the way of faith, the old way, the old tried and true path of faith in Jesus Christ. For there is hope for our souls. There is rest. And I pray, O Lord, that you would indeed bless your people now as we come to consider Christ yet again in a fresh way this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Galatians have been bewitched, Paul tells us. He starts off very dramatically. He says that a spell has been cast. The people of Galatia have been hypnotized, if you will. They've been possessed or mesmerized. Now, not literally, but it certainly seems that way to Paul looking into the context of this church. Look at what he says in the first verse. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's looking at this church, almost something like a father, and he's thinking to himself, what has happened? I hardly recognize you. You used to be wise. You used to be strong in the Lord. You used to be faithful, and now you're bewitched. You're easily led astray. You're wandering, flirting with a false path and a false gospel. Now, how did this happen in the church in Galatia? Well, the short answer is that the church in Galatia was tempted by false teachers, and they began to mess with the gospel. They began to add and to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. They wandered off course really at the very heart of this message. The heart of this false teaching is a confusion between grace and the law of God, beginning to blur them together, not understanding their proper role in relation to one another. No, the Galatian church began to think that their salvation was to be a product of both grace and the law. They added to the gospel, and this is an enormous mistake. It is a massive mistake, according to the the Apostle Paul, because the gospel is already perfect. It's perfect because it comes from God himself, and ironically, thinking that when we add to it, we make the gospel somehow richer, somehow sweeter, somehow better, we end up destroying it. Years ago, when I was a high school student, I had the opportunity to go to France with some fellow students, and we got to go and do all of the things you do in France. And one of those is you go to the Louvre. And I got to go into that great museum and see on a massive wall devoted to just one single painting. It's the Mona Lisa. It's very tiny and Uh, Let's just say, let's just imagine for a moment that in that moment, I had the opportunity when I was a young student, and I had the desire to paint over the Mona Lisa and to make her hair purple. That is, Mona Lisa would look a whole lot better with purple hair. Now, if I were to actually do that, I would certainly be adding to the Mona Lisa, wouldn't I? But I would not be increasing its value. I would be taking something that is precious, something that is rare, something that is a masterpiece and demolishing it by my so-called addition of purple hair. And it's the exact same way with the gospel. We think that we can add or tweak, change, alter, adjust as we see fit. And Paul's saying, no, this gospel is perfect. This gospel is exactly what you need when you add we spoil. And this is what the Galatians had begun to do. And so the question for us this morning is how can we learn from their mistake? Uh, What can we do to keep ourselves from this temptation to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I have two ways to answer that from the text this morning, two points, and they're somewhat easy to remember, I think the first point is we need to remember our experience of grace. We need to remember how we experienced the grace of God by the pure and simple gospel. And then secondly, we need to remember the very promise of grace. We need to remember the experience of grace, and we need to remember the promise of grace. We'll start with the first point. Remember your experience of grace. And he starts off, by reminding them of when they saw Christ crucified. Look at me at verse 1 in the text. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And now to us, and we're reading this, in English it seems a little bit clunky, a little bit strange. What does he mean by this? But Paul is actually using very specific Language in this first verse. He's focusing on the eyes. It was before their eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And he's sort of relying upon a cultural idea here that we aren't as familiar with. You see, there was a a cultural idea, you might say, an old wives' tale, if you want to put it this way, that if someone was ever to be bewitched, how would that happen? Well, it would happen through their eyes. That is, they would be bewitched through the eyes, and then it would go through the body, and then they would be given over to that spell. And he's making a point off of this. He's saying something akin to this. Your eyes used to be on Christ. Your eyes used to be mesmerized by the Lord Jesus Christ. You were devoted to him. But another spell has been cast in this illustration Paul is using. And now your, your eyes have been captivated by something else. They've been torn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells them that it was before your eyes so long ago that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And, and we kind of wonder, well, what does Paul mean by that? Now, we can safely assume that the Galatians didn't actually see Jesus Christ crucified. This is some years later, and this is a very far away place from Jerusalem. So no doubt all of these people would not have been there on the day of his crucifixion. So how did they see it? Well, this phrase Paul uses to be publicly portrayed, it's, it's something like an advertisement phrase. It's information that is made publicly available. It's something that's put up in the marketplace. It's something that everyone can see. That is, if there was a house for sale, everyone would know it would be put up on a sign. Or if a governor or a ruler made a law, it would be publicly portrayed before the people. You might think modern equivalent being something like a billboard or a newspaper, or thinking a little bit more modern, a web article, something that everybody is looking at. But Paul didn't walk around with a billboard, did he? No, he didn't do that, but rather he preached. And that's what he's talking about here. They saw Christ crucified through the preaching of Paul. And after all, Christ crucified is the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of everything that the apostle Paul preached. 1 Corinthians uh, 2 verse 2 is a good example. He says to those Christians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this was the very center of the Apostle Paul's message, and everything else the Apostle Paul taught was pointing them to this central theme of Christ crucified for you and for sinners. Maybe you've heard the phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words. Paul didn't have a picture, but he used thousands and thousands and thousands of words He painted them a picture through his preaching. In other words, when he preached, and when the gospel was preached, very truly they could say, we saw Christ. We came to know Christ. We came to see him on the cross. We came to know him in all of his glory, and all of his humility. We came to see Jesus. See, Paul didn't just tell the gospel. He explained it. He explained all of its parts. He explained all of its intricacies. He moved people to embrace the gospel. He explained their great need of the gospel, how they were sinners, cast away and hopeless, but for the grace of God. No, he didn't just tell them the gospel. He painted it for them. He moved them to that. He gripped their hearts with the gospel. He's saying that when I preached to you, you saw Christ. You saw his love. You saw his amazing grace. And they need to go back to that. They need to restart from the very beginning. They need to remember that time when they first came to learn of the wonder and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I would put it forward that that's something we need to do very, very often in the Christian life. We need to remind ourselves of when this gospel, when this Christ was shown to us. When did you see Christ crucified? When was the word preached to you? And not just preached to you, but when was the word of God preached to you and it captured your heart? When was the word of God preached to you and it struck a note deep within you? and You had new life and you were profoundly changed. What a wonderful day that was. It was a day you didn't do anything, did you? You simply heard. The gospel came. You listened and you heard and you believed and you received and you rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is pointing the Galatians back to that very same experience that all Christians have. He's reminding them, don't forget that experience. Remember that experience. Why? Why? lest your eyes be taken away from Christ. Lest something else wander into your view and the glory of Christ seems to fade. Well, he goes on, he doesn't just say that they need to remember their experience of Christ's preaching or Christ being preached to them. They also need to remember when the Spirit came to them. They need to remember the Spirit. Look with me at verses two and five. He says here, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a powerful question he's asking them. And he even says uh, that it's the only question that he needs to ask them. It's the most important question. It's how did you receive the Spirit, Galatians? and he only gives them two options. You either received the Spirit by the works of the law, the works of the flesh, or you received the Spirit when you heard and believed. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, when you received the Spirit? What does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, we can summarize just briefly here. He's talking about the saving work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit preeminently, who brings new life to dead sinners. He is the Spirit of God who brings regeneration. You might think of that great Old Testament text, the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel 37. Uh, Maybe you might recall this. The prophet is standing and he's seeing a vision before him. And what does he see? It's dead people all scattered before him. It's bones that are dry and decaying. And what does God say to him? He says, preach to them. Speak my word over them. Declare my word to them. And what will be the result? The spirit of life. The breath of life will come. And these bones will be animated. They will be brought to life itself. That's what the spirit of God does. But he doesn't just stop there. He brings us to life and he applies redemption to us. It's the spirit who gives us faith. It's the Spirit who indwells us, converts us, empowers us for the Christian life. In other words, the Spirit's work is unmistakable. It was the Spirit who brought dramatic change to Galatia. And the Galatians know this. They remember this. They know exactly what it was like to receive the Spirit of God. And so they couldn't mess this question up. They knew exactly how the Spirit had come to them. It was when they had faith. It was when they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at that time. He goes on. He says in verse 3, Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Paul's point here is rather important for us to understand. He is reminding them that their salvation begins by the Spirit, but it's not as if that work gets transferred over to us. Now, the Spirit completes that work as well. In other words, this work of the Spirit can't begin with him, but then be completed or finished by the flesh or by our works of the law. In fact, he's reminding them that we can't even improve upon the Spirit's work. We can't add to anything that the Spirit does in us because we're born in sin. Paul says it well in 7, Romans 7.18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And that truth must humble us. And we cannot add to our salvation. We don't start our salvation. We don't continue in our salvation by our power. And we certainly do not complete our salvation. From beginning to end, it is in the hands of God who works in and through us. I think Charles Spurgeon uh, says it so well. He says, if God were to put my salvation in my hands, I should be lost in 10 minutes. And so no matter how sanctified you may be, no matter how much you've grown in holiness before God, no matter how Christ-like we might become in this life, We must always rest on this. Our justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That is, our whole salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Well, after pressing this point, Paul goes even further. And look with me at verse 4. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? if indeed it was in vain. Here's how he concludes this first portion of the text, and he concludes it with a great warning, but also great hope. And I want us to see both of them. First, let's see the warning here. He says uh, that, have you suffered so many things in vain? And when we hear that word suffer, you might simply think, have you experienced so many things? Paul's saying something like, after all you've been through, after all of the ways that God has blessed Galatia, after all of the ways that you've been blessed by your faith and by the work of the Spirit, are you now going to go back? Are you really going to to turn and follow a new path now, a new gospel? If you do so, he has very harsh words for this, then it all was in vain. The word means useless, pointless accomplishing absolutely nothing. If you go down this false gospel and this false path, he's telling the Galatians, then it, then it turns out that your salvation was all just a big mistake from the very beginning. The spirit failed, Paul saying, Christ died for no reason then. He's already said this just in the last chapter. Chapter 2, verse 21 in Galatians. Paul says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if, if you follow this false gospel, if you add to the gospel by your works, what are you really saying? Christ died for no purpose. But he also gives hope here as well, if indeed it was in vain. And That's such a small phrase, but it expresses such a profound hope in God. And I want you to see this. He knows that the true believers will repent of this false gospel. They will turn away from adding to the gospel. They will return to Christ. God will prove to them that their experience is not in vain after all. But they simply need to remember the grace of God that has come to them. That's the first point for us this morning. Second point and final point, they need to remember the promise of grace. I think one way you can divide up these two points is to think that the first deals perhaps with a more subjective look on the Christian life. This deals with the objective, the promises of God themselves. Look at verse six with me. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, as righteousness. And Paul makes a move here, a switch. Uh, he's following a, a new line of argument here to persuade them. And what he does is he heads straight for the Old Testament and very specifically Abraham. And you've got to understand, Paul is making a genius move when he goes to Abraham. Why? Because the false teachers in Galatia are big, big fans of Abraham. They presume and think that Abraham supports their theology. Let me just give you a brief aside about these false teachers. Sometimes we call them Judaizers. That is, they are those who have come into the church at this time in Galatia, and they have, in essence, told the people of God that in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus, but you also need the law of Moses. You need the moral law. You need the... The uh, sacrificial law. You need the law of Moses, and particularly you need circumcision. After all, that's such an easy, simple way to mark yourself off as God's people. And so their argument would be something like this the Judaizers, that is, that if you want to be a son of Abraham, if you want to be in if you want to be in the covenant, if you want to be in the faith, if you want to be among the people of God, well, you have to have circumcision. It's a barrier to entry, they would say. You couldn't be associated with Abraham or the people of God if you didn't have this all special mark of circumcision. Now, that's, on its surface, maybe a very convincing argument by the Judaizers. There's only one big problem with it. It's completely and entirely unbiblical. It's not what the Old Testament actually taught. Paul teaches this uh, all over the New Testament, that Abraham was not justified on account of his circumcision. He was justified on account of his faith, which came even before he was circumcised. Uh, Earlier in our worship service, we read a little bit from Romans 4. Well, I'm going to have us read just a little bit further in Romans. In Romans 4, 9 through 11, Paul addresses this head on talking about Abraham. Hear what he says here. He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Paul's not preaching a new gospel. He's preaching the old gospel. It's the Judaizers who are preaching the new gospel. He's reminding them that grace was always to be received by the people of God by faith alone. But Paul gets right to the very heart of it. No person can be saved but by faith, and Abraham is the exact person to prove that. He's striking a weighty blow to this false theology of the Judaizers, and then he goes on in verses seven through eight to really press this argument. He says, "Know that then, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Maybe I could ask you a question this morning. When was the gospel first preached? A lot of people would want to say, Well, it would have to be on the very first day of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. After all, the gospel is Jesus' gospel, and it's associated with him. So when Jesus comes onto the scene saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, well, that's the first time that the gospel is promised. Paul's saying, No, that's not exactly right. The gospel has been preached for thousands of years before Christ. He actually says that the scriptures foresaw the gospel of Christ. The scriptures pointed to Christ. They foreshadowed Christ. They, in every way, prophesied and promised the coming Messiah. And it was always by faith in those covenant promises of God that the people of God were to be saved. That's always how you became a son of God or a son of Abraham. You believed the promises of God's salvation. I think this text shows us something else that we don't want to miss it shows us very clearly that God's story of salvation never changes because our God does not change. He has one covenant of grace, and that covenant of grace goes all the way back to the very beginning. It starts with Adam and Eve. When God promises to to Eve and to Adam that the seed of the woman would come, and he would crush the head of the serpent, and he would defeat evil, There was the first promise of grace, and that is how Adam and Eve and all of their children were saved by believing in that promise. And then it was simply expanded with Abraham. By the time you come to Abraham, the covenant promise is expanded to now include a blessing to the whole world. That is, through this seed of the woman, which now comes through Abraham, all of the nations would receive blessing and joy from God. And that's really the story of the Old Testament. And I could certainly bore you by going on and on and on and on all throughout the story of the Old Testament. But bit by bit, God's plan of salvation was being revealed, all of it pointing to Christ until Christ finally comes on the scene and all of the promises are fulfilled in him. I think Paul puts it so well in Galatians chapter 4. is there that he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. What a simple truth, but we must know it. That when Jesus comes, all of the promises of God are to be fulfilled in him. That promised salvation becomes accomplished salvation. Really, we can conclude by remembering that the Bible is really a simple story, isn't it? It's one story, with Christ alone at the very center. It's simple because God has one people, and they're to be saved by one way, namely faith alone in the only Messiah of God. This is the only way to become a son of Abraham, Paul is telling them. Well, then he brings it to its closing in verse 9. He says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham lived, and he heard this gospel promise, and he believed, and he was saved. Jesus himself tells us the same thing in John chapter 8. There he says to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Do you have this faith, the same faith that Abraham had thousands and thousands of years ago? Do you follow this ancient way of salvation, the way it's been from the very beginning? We need to know this morning that this way of faith alone is the tried and true way of receiving salvation. In fact, it's the perfect way. It's the only way. It is God's way. And so I need to remind you this morning that what you need is not something new. What you need is not something that you can find in this world. What you need is not something that you can make. It is not something that you can produce. It is not something that you can accomplish. It is not an updated gospel. It is not a fresh gospel. It is not an adapted or changed gospel. No, what the people of God need, what the world needs, is the old gospel. It's the only gospel that can actually save. I'll end with the words of Jeremiah 6, the great prophet. Jeremiah six sixteen, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your holy name, we praise you, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that there is one path of salvation, and it is to be found by faith alone, in Christ alone. We thank you that this path has been revealed to us, shown so clearly, that we may put our trust in Jesus, that we may be saved for all of eternity. We pray all of this in the very name of Jesus, our precious Savior. Amen. Will the